Okay, good evening everyone. Good evening. Glad you're here. And it's the first Thursday of the month, and that means we're on the Catechism. Now, last month we ended up, uh, we did chapter 1. And today we will begin on chapter 2, uh, paragraph 50. But before we begin, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come Holy Spirit, fill our hearts and our minds so that we may know the faith and love the faith and live the faith. This week we rejoice in, a, in the resurrection of Jesus. We look forward to our own resurrection. We look forward to eternal life with God. Come Holy Spirit, help us to learn the faith so that we can live with Jesus, that we can live with God right now. And that we can love Jesus in our neighbors right now. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, or without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Uh, once again, um, next week... It will be church history. Uh, the third Thursday will be apologetics. And the fourth Thursday of the month will be Catholic sexuality. Uh, for those of you on YouTube, uh, just go to the comment box and make comments or ask questions. And I will address those questions at the beginning of our next class. All right, so we're on paragraph 50. For those on YouTube following along, we're on paragraph 50. Chapter 2, God comes to meet man. In chapter 1, we were told that through our human reason, we can come to know that there must be a God, okay? There has to be some creator, or there's a creation here, okay? Just using reason and intellect you could come to know that but who is that god you could not come to know that fully at all for that we need divine revelation that's what we're talking about tonight by natural reason man can know god with certainty on the basis of his works but there is another order of knowledge which man cannot possibly arrive at by his own powers, the order of divine revelation. Through an utterly free decision, God has revealed himself and given himself to man. It is true, uh, God is perfect in every way. And so he didn't need to create anything. But God chose to create us. It says an utterly free decision. So God has chosen to reveal himself to us. He has chosen to create us. He wants us to share in his love. He doesn't need anything. God is perfect. He's perfectly happy. The three persons of the Blessed Trinity have perfection in every way, and they didn't need to create us. Uh, but they chose to do so of an utterly free decision. This he does by revealing the mystery, his plan of loving goodness 
formed from all eternity in Christ for the benefit of all men. God has fully revealed this plan by sending us his beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So the fullness of God's revelation comes in Jesus. God does this gradually over the centuries, uh, revealing himself more and more, Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and such. And the fullness of God's revelation, I mean, we are so blessed to um, live at a time after Jesus has come to the world, because we have the fullness of revelation. The, the people before him, not so much. Paragraph 51. It pleased God in his goodness and wisdom to reveal himself and to make known the mystery of his will. His will was that men should have access to the Father through Christ, the Word made flesh in the Holy Spirit, and thus become sharers in the divine nature. So it's God's will that we all come to know the Father. God, who dwells in unapproachable light, wants to communicate his own divine life to the men he freely created in order to adopt them as his sons in his only begotten son. Now, that term, only begotten, we'll hear that again later in the catechism, but let's explain it here. Only begotten son. To beget is the male part of reproduction. The man begets, the woman gives birth. Okay? Jesus is the only begotten son. So another way, he is the natural son of God as opposed to adoption. We are the adopted children of God. And so as St. Paul says, we are adopted and we become uh, baptized into the body of Christ. So it is, it is God's will in order to adopt them as his sons. Isn't that awesome? I would think, Uli, you're adopted and you would really understand this. You know, what it means to be adopted, that, that is a special love there. Um, I would think that there's, there's a, someone has chosen you. Uh, my son Nick over there, I got him uh, because God chose him to be my child. <clears throat> I didn't choose you, I'm sorry, but <laughs> uh, but with Uliana here, I mean, your adoptive parents, they chose you. And that always has to be a really neat thing, I would think. It's very special. You find it to be a very special thing? Yeah, I would think so. And God Almighty has done that with us. He creates us, and then he chooses us to be his children. That's a, that's an, he, he adopts us. It's an amazing thing. We'll talk more about it later. By revealing himself, God wishes to make them capable of responding to him, and of knowing him, and of loving him far beyond their own natural capacity. 
The divine plan of revelation is realized simultaneously by deeds and words which are intrinsically bound up with each other and shed light on each other. It involves a specific divine pedagogy. Now, what's that word? Pedagogy means a method of teaching. Okay, so when you see that word, you know what that is. A method of teaching. God communicates himself to man gradually. He prepares him to welcome by stages the supernatural revelation that is to culminate in the person and mission of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. So what it's saying is God has chosen to reveal himself by stages by various covenants that build on each other until we get to the, the climax, the culmination, which is the coming of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and the eternal covenant, the new covenant. And remember what the priest says at Mass. This is the cup of my blood, of the new and everlasting covenant. So this is... We're in that fulfillment. We're in the time of the fulfillment, in the time of Jesus. Continuing, St. Irenaeus of Lyon repeatedly speaks of this divine pedagogy using the image of God and man becoming accustomed to one another. The Word of God dwelt in man and became the Son of Man in order to accustom man to perceive God and to accustom God to dwell in man, according to the Father's pleasure. Uh, that's kind of a nice uh, analogy. It's, uh, you know, a young man and woman, they date, they get to know each other a little bit. I mean, uh, I don't think you asked Renee to marry you the first <laughs> night you met her, the first day you met her. And, uh, and, uh, I come on in, and um, you get to know each other for a while first. There are catechisms there in the back. And um, so, it sometimes seems to me that God took a very long time you know, a couple thousand years uh, for the human race to get to know him, so to speak. But uh, who am I to question God's ways, huh? Number two, the stages of revelation, paragraph 54. In the beginning, God makes himself known. God, who creates and conserves all things by his word, provides men with constant evidence of himself in his created realities. And furthermore, wishing to open up the way to heavenly salvation, he manifested himself to our first parents from the very beginning. He invited them to intimate communion with himself and clothed them with resplendent grace and justice. When Adam and Eve were first created, they were created with sanctifying grace. They had supernatural life in their soul. 
they had an intimate relationship with, with God. Adam and Eve were in a beautiful relationship with God. And they had um, uh, preternatural gifts that they lost. But they had when they were first created. So from the very beginning, God wanted us to be in union with him. This revelation, this revelation was not broken off by our first parents' sin. After the fall, God buoyed them up with the hope of salvation by promising redemption. And he has never ceased to show his solicitude for the human race, for he wishes to give eternal life to all those who seek salvation by patience and well-doing. And then there's a quote here from uh, the Eucharistic prayer. You'll, you'll recognize it. Even when he disobeyed you and lost your friendship, you did not abandon him to the power of death. Again and again, you offered a covenant to man. You remember that from Mass. It is true, when Adam and Eve sinned, they did not lose their knowledge of God. Just like if you commit a sin, if you commit a mortal sin, you don't lose the gifts that God gave you in the first place. Your gifts of intelligence, your, your, your gift of uh, the natural senses, your, what you know about Jesus Christ, you don't commit a sin and suddenly, oh, I, I, I don't have these abilities. No, you still have all your abilities. You still have the knowledge that you had. So Adam and Eve, they lost sanctifying grace. They lost a, a relationship with God that they had. The intimacy was broken, but they did not lose the gifts, all of the gifts that God had given them. The Covenant with Noah, paragraph 56. After the unity of the human race was shattered by sin, God at once sought to save humanity part by part. Not, at all, not all at once. Part by part. This is how God did it. The Covenant with Noah after the flood gives expression to the principle of the divine economy toward the nations. In other words, towards men grouped in their lands, each with its own language, by their families in their nations. This state of division into many nations, each entrusted by divine providence to the guardianship of angels, is as once cosmic, social, and religious. There's a little detail in there that each nation, so to speak, has its own guardian angel. I find that interesting because if you're, you're familiar with Fatima, and before Mary appeared at Fatima to the three children, uh, almost a year ahead of time, an angel appeared to them. Are you familiar with that? You did not know that. Oh, yeah. An angel appeared, and the angel said, I am the guardian angel of Portugal, which I find interesting, that, that it seems as if countries have guardian angels. That's how the angel identified himself to the three children at Fatima, as the guardian angel of Portugal. Oh, yeah. They had several apparitions of that angel. He even gave them Holy Communion. 
Yeah. You, you've, you know the Fatima prayer that we say with the rosary. Oh my God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love thee. I ask pardon for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not hope, and do not love thee. Right? Mm -hmm. And that was taught by the angel to the three children. And he said, pray that. Uh, in fact, well, we'll take a little detour here. It, you know, uh, the guardian angel appears to the children, and he has a host and a chalice. And he gives Holy Communion to the children. And he leaves the, the angel, kneels down with the children in adoration of the Holy Eucharist. And the, and the chalice stays suspended in air. And the angel kneels down with the children. And that's when they pray the prayer. Oh my God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love thee. Isn't that beautiful? And he teaches them that prayer. That particular prayer is one of my favorite prayers. One of the most common prayers I pray. Especially at Mass. Especially at Communion time. I mean, I, I think if an angel teaches you to pray a prayer, <laughs> that really should be a prayer that you pray. Uh, I don't know what better teacher you could get than an angel. Well, the Blessed Mother, I guess. Okay. <laughs> I guess there are better teachers. But, uh, and Jesus teaches us to pray too, so those are all really great prayers. Um, back to paragraph... 57. The state of division into many nations, each entrusted by divine providence to the guardianship of angels, is, as, is at once cosmic, social, and religious. It is intended to limit the pride of fallen humanity, united only in its perverse ambition to forge its own unity as at Babel, building the Tower of Babel, which was an act of pridefulness. The, these people said, let us make a name for ourselves. They wanted to be great. And God confused them and then scattered them around the world. But because of sin... Both polytheism, which is the worship of many gods, and the idolatry of the nation and of its rulers, and that is constantly a temptation for people to worship their own selves, their own country, to put country ahead of God even. Threaten this provisional economy with the perversion of paganism. The covenant with Noah remains in force during the times of the Gentiles until the universal proclamation of the gospel. The Bible venerates several great figures among the Gentiles. If you don't know, the word Gentile means non-Jewish. And, of course, all people were Gentiles before the Jewish race came into existence. And that happened with Abraham. The Jewish race comes into existence with Abraham. So everybody before that is a Gentile. And so several great figures among the Gentile. Abel. We have 
the child of Adam and Eve, uh, Abel and his brother Cain. And of course, Cain murdered Abel. That's the first murder in the Bible. The king priest Melchizedek, a figure of Christ. And the upright Noah, Daniel, and Job. Scripture thus expresses the heights of sanctity that can be reached by those who live according to the covenant of Noah, waiting for Christ get to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so even before the coming of Christ, even before God reveals himself to Abraham, it is possible to reach a certain level of sanctity by obeying the natural law that is in the hearts of all human beings. Every human being has a conscience. Every human being has a certain knowledge of what's right and wrong according to the natural law. God chooses Abraham, paragraph 59. In order to gather together scattered humanity, God calls Abram from his country, his kindred, and his father's house, and makes him Abraham, that is, the father of a multitude of nations. That's what the name Abraham means, father of many nations. Quote, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That is what God said to Abram. Abraham. In you all the nations will be blessed. And of course that has come about through Jesus Christ. Uh, through the descendant of Abraham, Jesus, descended by the flesh in natural humanity. He was a Jewish person. All the nations of the world find a blessing. Paragraph 60. The people descended from Abraham would be the trustees of the promise made to the patriarchs, the chosen people called to prepare for that day when God would gather all his children into the unity of the church. They would be the root onto which the Gentiles would be grafted once they came to believe. That's what St. Paul tells us in his letter that... The root is the Jewish people, and then the Gentiles who have believed in Christ, they have been grafted onto that root. God made the covenant with Abraham first, and then comes the, the new covenant in Christ. And uh, that word patriarch, in case you don't know what that means, that means chief fathers. Patriarch means chief fathers. And we look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God calls these three and he repeats to all three of them that they will be the father of a, a nation of people that will be God's people. Today, the church is God's people. The patriarchs, prophets, and certain other Old Testament figures have been and always will be honored as saints in all the church's liturgical traditions. Yeah, we don't normally say like St. Moses or St. Elijah, but the fact is they're in heaven. I mean, when Jesus is on earth, Moses and Elijah, it says, appeared from heaven. I mean, obviously they're saints in heaven. 
we do consider them as holy ones, as saints, these righteous people of the Old Covenant. God forms his people Israel. Uh, paragraph 62. After the patriarchs, God formed Israel as his people by freeing them from slavery in Egypt. He established them with the covenant of Mount Sinai and through Moses gave them his law so that they would recognize him and serve him as the one living and true God, the provident father and just judge, so that they would look for the promised Savior. Israel is the priestly people of God, called by the name of the Lord, and the first to hear the word of God, the people of elder brethren in the faith of Abraham. The Jewish people is, are often referred to as Israel. Okay? Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and the descendants of Jacob are often just called Israel. And of course, today we would have the nation of Israel. Through the prophets, God forms his people in the hope of salvation, in the expectation of a new and everlasting covenant intended for all to be written on their hearts. The old covenant was written on two stone tablets, but God tells us through the prophet that the day will come when he will write the law in our hearts. It will be a new law, a law of love, a love of God and love of neighbor written in our hearts. The prophets proclaim a radical redemption of the people of God, purification from all their infidelities, a salvation which will include all the nations. Above all, the poor and humble of the Lord will bear this hope. Such holy women as Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Judith, and Esther kept alive the hope of Israel's salvation. The purest figure among them is Mary. So they're waiting for the Savior, and the salvation, it, it's amazing when you read the prophets and we proclaim these things at Easter time. You know, Isaiah talks about this, this paradise and everyone will know the Lord and everything will be perfect. Um, yeah, that's heaven. You know, eventually there's going to be a complete and total redemption. Uh, no more sin, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness. That will come in the fullness of, of uh, salvation in heaven. Uh, three, <clears throat> Christ Jesus, mediator and fullness of all revelation. God has said everything in his word. Jesus is the word. 65, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. Yes. Uh, when we say last days, the church means from Jesus Christ to the end of the world. 
sometimes you hear people talking about, oh, we're in the last days. And by that they mean like, oh, Jesus Christ is coming very soon. And we're in the very, la the very last days. When the church says last days in the catechism and in documents, it means the new covenant, the period of the church. That, so we've been in the last days for 2,000 years now. And we don't know how long the last days are going to end, but it's to uh, distinguish us from the former days, the days before the coming of Christ. Christ, the Son of God made man, is the Father's one perfect and unsurpassable Word. He is the eternal Word. Mother Angelica's network, EWTN, Eternal Word Television Network. Jesus is the eternal Word. He is the Word made flesh. And all revelation, all perfection is in Him. In him he has said everything. There will be no other word than this one. St. John of the Cross, among others, commented strikingly on Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In giving us his son, his only word, for he possesses no other, he spoke everything to us at once, in this sole word, and he has no more to say, because what he spoke before to the prophets in parts, he has now spoken all at once by giving us the all who is his son. Any person questioning God or desiring some vision or revelation would be guilty not only of foolish behavior, but also of offending him by not fixing his eyes entirely upon Christ and by living with the desire for, for some other novelty. There will be no further revelation. 66. The Christian economy, therefore, since it is the new and definitive covenant, will never pass away. And no new public revelation is to be expected before the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet even if revelation is already complete, it has not been made completely explicit. It remains for Christian faith gradually to grasp its full significance over the course of the centuries." We need to talk about that for a second. There is no new public revelation. In the church, we speak of public revelation and private revelation. Public, public revelation is the deposit of faith. It is a sacred tradition and sacred scripture. It is everything that Jesus revealed to the 12 apostles. And the twelve apostles passed that on in their lifetimes. So public revelation ended with the death of St. John, the last of the twelve apostles. Now this is 
really, really important because down through the last 2,000 years, there have always been people coming along who have said, oh, an angel visited me and has given me some new revelation that you need to believe in order to be saved. As soon as you hear that, you know it's not true. Muhammad said this. He says, oh, I was in the cave praying and the angel Gabriel came and gave me this new revelation. And I wrote it down, and that's the, the Koran, which he says was given to him by God through an angel. Uh, Joseph Smith, who started the Mormons, he says the same thing. An angel came to me and revealed this to me, and now we have the Book of Mormon, and this is new revelation, and you have to believe this. You cannot please God. You cannot be saved if you don't do this. <coughs> This is completely, it's, first of all, it's illogical. Jesus is our Savior. He is the Son of God. He is the Word spoken by the Father to the world. There is no greater revelation, no further revelation. There is nothing that we need to know that He has not revealed for us in order to be saved. If we needed some further revelation... Well, then all these people who lived before Joseph Smith or all these people who lived before Muhammad, he was in the 600s, you know, they would all be lost because they didn't have the revelation that they needed. All the revelation we need is there. And I mean, this happens over and over and over. Sun Young Moon, you ever hear of him in the Unification Church? You know, he claimed that he was visited by an angel, by a messenger from God. And that he brought a new revelation. So, anybody coming along saying that they have a further revelation, a new revelation, something else that you need to know. If only people would know that. They would, they would never join these cults, these false religions. So that's public revelation. Now we're going to talk about private revelation for just a moment. Uh, before I go on, what the Catechism said here, though, is even public revelation, what Jesus has revealed to the apostles and what the apostles wrote in Scripture, we, we continuously understand it more clearly as the centuries go by. Okay, so we can always reach a deeper level of understanding. It's not there's, there's going to be some new teaching, something novel, something... The Pope is never going to come along and teach infallibly some new revelation. Okay, it always has to be something that we understand better something that's been there in sacred tradition, in sacred scripture, something that's always been there that we just understand better now. That is always happening, a deepening of theology. Yeah. What would you call um, St. Bernadette? You know, Mary appeared to her and said that 
um, I forget what she what what but I mean that right. was, that was a revelation. She, she's at, at Lourdes and that's called private revelation. Okay. And that's the next paragraph. So okay. let's take up the next paragraph <laughs> okay. and we'll answer that question. Throughout the ages, there have been so-called private revelations, some of which have been recognized by the authority of the church. They do not belong, however, to the deposit of faith. It is not their role to improve or complete Christ's definitive revelation, but to help live more fully by it in a certain period of history. Guided by the magisterium of the church, the census fidelum knows how to discern and welcome in these revelations whatever constitutes an authentic call of Christ or his saints to the church. Christian faith cannot accept revelations that claim to surpass or correct the revelation of which Christ is the fulfillment as is the case in certain non-Christian religions and also in certain recent sects which base themselves on such revelations. The things that I just mentioned, like, you know, the Mormons. So, when there is a private revelation, such as the Virgin Mary appearing to Bernadette at Lourdes in uh, 1858... Mary gives messages. She appeared to Bernadette 18 different times and gave her some messages. Basically, one basic message was do penance for your sins. Turn away from your sinfulness. Well, there's nothing new about this. That is totally in Scripture. I mean, repent of your sins. This is the most basic message of the gospel. Okay? And as the Catechism says, oh, it's a private revelation which does not improve upon the definitive revelation of Jesus. What it does is it acts as a cheerleader. It, it exhorts us on to do what we already know we're supposed to do. But when the mother of God appears, it gives a greater emphasis to it. And it moves us to greater action. Like I said, she's almost acting like a cheerleader saying, come on now, let's do it. Okay? So there's nothing new. She doesn't reveal anything new that we didn't know already before. Who did, well, who, who did she, she tell that, that she was the Immaculate Conception? To Bernadette. But okay. it's well, not like we did not know that Mary was sinless before. Okay. In fact, in 1854, four years before the apparitions at Lourdes, Pope Pius the Eleventh, I think, um, had defined the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Oh, okay. And this was seen four years later as a very nice confirmation of that. Mm -hmm. We didn't really need that. He, he defined it as a dogma of the faith, infallibly taught, uh, but it was not new. Now, there were disagreements about it. Uh, John Duns Scotus said Mary was immaculately conceived. I think St. Thomas Aquinas expressed some doubts whether that was the case or not. 
And so you have great theologians, but it was always there. There were other saints down through the history of the church who certainly thought Mary was sinless. And we go all the way back to Scripture. You have hints of Mary being sinless. The angel Gabriel greets her. Hail, full of grace. All right. If you're full of grace, can there be any sin there? Grace is God's life in your soul. If you are full of God's life in your soul, there can't be any sin there. And so the angel greeting her, and even Mary, it says, Mary wondered at his greeting. Like, wow, you're, you're, you're saying I'm sinless, huh? Uh, uh, maybe, <laughs> it says Mary wondered, maybe she's thinking, how did he know that? I knew it, but how did he know it, you know? We don't know what is going on in the mind of the Virgin Mary there, but we do have hints like that throughout Scripture. One of my favorites is the, the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. It was made of wood covered with gold inside and out. The purest gold, okay? Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God was at the Ark of the Covenant, okay? The presence of God is inside Mary. She's the mother of God. And so I love that image, that type, that foreshadowing, where we have this Ark, this box that contains the Ten Commandments, and it's gold inside and out. Mary is gold inside and out. She is sinless. She is pure. And so we have hints of this all through Scripture. There's many, many more. And then, so when the Pope proclaims this as a dogma of the faith, it's not something new. It's simply making explicit something that has always been there so that the faithful can believe it with complete confidence. Before it was proclaimed, there could be some uh, argumentation about it. But now that the Pope has proclaimed it as a doctrine of the faith to be believed by all Catholics for all time, okay, now it's a settled question. And, and that's the beauty of, of making a definition like that, uh, that the faithful can believe. That's the beauty of a catechism like this, that the Pope says is a sure norm that we can, that we can uh, put our trust in it. And so uh, we have to distinguish between public revelation and private revelation. And the church has to judge. When it says that um, private revelation, some of which have been recognized by the authority of the church. For example, Lourdes was recognized by the church as worthy of belief. Fatima, the apparitions there, 
were approved by the church. When you when you, you've heard that term, approved by the church. Now, some private revelations are not approved. Some supposed apparitions are, are not authentic. And they are what we say condemned by the church. Well, the church says they are not worthy of belief. And the church does not urge us to, to pay any attention. No, it's not worthy of belief. But when these things are approved, private revelations, the church is saying, yes, we believe this is of supernatural origin and it is worthy of believing. And of course, there's nothing in it that would be contrary to public revelation. That's one of the criteria by which the church is judged. If this apparition or whatever this private revelation is, a, a locution which is like a, a voice speaking to your mind or a vision or whatever it is, this, this spiritual phenomenon, if it contradicts public revelation, immediately you know it is not from the, from the Lord because God does not contradict himself. Why are you grinning back? Uh, no, I'm curious. Just because you know today's the feast of Saint Vincent. Like oh. he, so, so, so I mean, he had kind of a private revelation, you know, which I mean, he, I mean, he spoke out, you know, saying that he is the angel of judgment. Right. <clears throat> I mean, has the church ever like said yes or no or? No, and not to my knowledge, and that is a wonderful question. Um, just to bring everybody up to speed. Today is April the 5th, the Feast of St. Vincent Ferrer, who happens to be next to the Virgin Mary, like my favorite <laughs> saint. And I got Nick to like him a lot, too. <laughs> He's my confirmation saint. Nick took him for his confirmation name. I just love the guy. And he was a Spanish priest, a Dominican, and... and um, uh, he, he lived a, a life filled with miracles. Even, he was doing miracles before he was even born. It was amazing. And um, the last 20 years of his life um, were a special time. And he went around Europe and he preached the gospel like Christ and he did miracles like Christ. It was just amazing. The guy just did thousands and thousands and thousands of miracles great miracles. One of the things he said that he was the angel of the judgment mentioned in Revelation, in the book of Revelation. He claimed that's who he was. And someone said, well, I don't believe you. And he said, I will show you that I'm the angel of the judgment. There's a dead man laying there. And he says to the dead man, am I the angel of the judgment or not? And the dead man sits right up and says, Vincent, you are the angel of the judgment. And then he lays back down dead. You know, the guy did stupendous miracles. But even there, the church always has to judge. And as far as I know, there's never been any statement by the magisterium saying that, that he either was or was not the fulfillment of that particular person in Scripture. And saints, even though they can do great miracles sometimes through the power of God, they don't always get it right. For example, 
St. Vincent Ferrer was alive during the Western Schism, which is the time when there were three men who all claimed to be Pope at the same time. And he was backing uh, a guy who was not really the Pope. St. Catherine of Siena was alive at the same time. She was backing a different guy. So now we have two great saints, both who had many spiritual phenomena, and they're backing two different guys as the legitimate pope. Of course, we had a council, the Council of Constance, and they got all three to resign, and they elected a new one and started over. But um, there's a very good point to be made. On Private revelation is really, really interesting. And there's tons of it. People have visions. They have locutions. They, there are apparitions. These things do happen. But there's a lot of fakes. If you don't believe me, it's just, I did it a year or two ago. I just went on Google and I Googled Marian apparitions. And I found a website uh, a Catholic website that lists hundreds and hundreds of them. And the vast majority of them, once in a while, you have approved. There are more that they have condemned, not approved. And the vast majority of them, no answer. Is there, there's never been a decision. If I claim to have a vision of St. Vincent Ferrer and he gave me messages for the world, it would be investigated by the local bishop to some degree or another, and he could say it's worthy of belief, or he could say, Henry... That's not supernatural. You're just out of your mind. You're crazy. Your devotion to St. Vincent has taken you into imagination. Okay? And he could condemn it and say, no, you shouldn't believe that. Or he could simply say, we don't know, and we're not making a decision. And that's what happens in the vast majority of these cases. So private revelation is really interesting stuff. But you shouldn't, you really should withhold any, any kind of, uh, you should follow the church's lead on it. Now, the church does allow you, for example, I, I have an apparition that I personally believe is worthy of belief. I think it's supernatural. I think it's worthy of belief. Uh, these are the visions of Mary to four children at Garabandal, Spain, from 1961 to 1965. They had thousands of visions. All kinds of miraculous events occurred there. The church, um, uh, the... Um, St. Jose Maria Escriva, the founder of Opus DA, he believed in it. Padre Pio, and there are statements from saying he believed in it. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, 
she met the visionaries and she made statements that she believed it was authentic. Um, uh, Pope Paul VI had a book about Garabandal on his desk and one of the cardinals said, whoa, you're reading about that? He said, why wouldn't I read about that? You know, he's very interesting. I mean, he didn't say he believed in it, but I mean, if the Pope is taking time to study it, I mean... So you see, Garabondo has never been condemned, and it has never been officially approved as worthy of belief. But I, as a Catholic, I'm still allowed to read about it, and uh, I get a monthly magazine, a bi-monthly magazine, and I read it from cover to cover every, every issue. It's really fascinating stuff. And the message of Garabandal, which I would want the whole world to hear, is do penance for your sins, live, turn away from your sins, live a good life, and especially pray for priests and bishops. Well, that is a great message. They certainly need our prayers. We have a great need to pray for bishops and priests today because uh, they ha are having a very difficult time in many ways. And so the message of Garabandal uh, is a wonderful message and I hope the whole world follows it. But there's, there are elements of that particular uh, apparition that are kind of controversial that I won't go into but it's private revelation. You don't treat it like public revelation. Private revelation is to urge us on, is to help us live out what we already know we need to do. What you need to know to be saved was taught by Jesus Christ to the apostles. And that's public revelation. It's the job of the magisterium to pass that on from generation to generation, not to let anybody add to it or subtract from it, keep its message pure, and, and the catechism helps to do that. And so this is, a, this is a very, very important distinction. There are people, well, there was a private revelation in Nesita, Wisconsin. This was like 40 years ago. Some lady up there was claiming that she was getting messages from the Virgin Mary. We actually had some people from Rushi, very good Catholic people. They went up there. They got very much into it. And one family actually moved up there so they could be close to it. But eventually it was condemned by the local bishop. He said it's not worthy of belief. But they still believed it. They had really invested themselves in it, and they still believed it. That is what you can't do. When the church says, this is not worthy of belief, when it's condemned, you've got to let it go. That's where, that's where the beauty of the Catholic Church is. We have pastors, we have a magisterium, and they say, don't believe that. And that's, you don't have to have that apparition in Wisconsin to get to heaven. Everything you need to know to get to heaven was taught to us by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal word. 
And so that's where you put your, your life. And that's where you follow. And you don't ever follow anybody, even if they seem to be doing miracles. If the church condemns it, give it up, walk away from it. And you'll never end up in some cult then. All right. What time is it? Um, it's been about an hour. Let's, uh, and, um, oh, and we just finished that section. That is wonderful. And so we will go to Article uh, 2, uh, Paragraph 74. We'll go to that. That's a good place to stop. Um, if anybody has questions on YouTube, again, uh, go, go on to the comment box. Put your question there. Put your comments there. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, these classes are fun. They're great. And I, and I look on the uh, YouTube and I see that, oh, you know, uh, 100 people or 50 people have uh, viewed it. And uh, I'd love to get some feedback from what they're saying. And, and uh, like you had a great question, which allowed me to explain it better. So I'd uh, love to see those questions on YouTube or comments. And um, next week is church history. So let's finish up with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you so much, Lord, for revealing yourself to us. Thank you so much for adopting us to be your children. Thank you for creating us and giving us life and giving us supernatural life in yourself. Thank you so much for every day of life and for your love. Lord, we look forward to living with you forever in heaven. Saint Vincent, saint in heaven, pray for us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.